Let's, um, let's look at the book of Isaiah again. You know, Hollywood, Hollywood over the years has had a, fascina- a fascination with uh, oh, doomsday movies, you know, the, the theme of uh, the, the end of the world type themes, storylines that include, uh, um, you know, some type of a disease that wipes out the planet or uh, an alien who is coming to annihilate the world. Maybe it was, uh, uh, maybe it's a giant meteorite that's going to crash into the world and, and pulverize us all or a uh, or uh, uh, some type of volcanic eruption that's going to split apart the Earth's crust. Uh, uh, maybe it's a, a new ice age that's coming, or a global warming scenario, or maybe it's a, a storyline of, of some devious genius who's, uh, who's concocted the, the world-ending um, weapon, and uh, you know everybody's after him. There's just this fascination with the end of the world and doomsday. And of course, it's Hollywood. It's make-believe. But there is a storyline of doomsday. There is a storyline of the end of the world. And it's not make-believe, Hollywood. For it's found in the Scriptures. It's God's story for how things are going to end. Our passage uh, that we're going to look at this morning uh, focuses on that a little bit, Isaiah chapter 34. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 34. I'm reading here from the New American Standard Version, and the first four verses of Isaiah 34 tell us to draw near, O nations, to hear and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains hear. This is a, a warning. It's like pay attention. Are you awake, O peoples of the world, O nations? Listen up. And the world and all that springs from it, for the Lord's indignation is against all the nations and his wrath against all their enemies. He's utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. So their slain will be thrown out and their corpses will will give off their stench and the mountains will will be drenched with their blood, and all the, the host of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll, and all their hosts will wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. This has been a common theme, or more than once in Isaiah. If you go back a, about 10 chapters to Isaiah 24, look at those first uh, few verses, Isaiah 24. Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, He devastates it, distorts its surface, scatters its inhabitants. The people would be like the priest, the servant like the master, the maid like the mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. In other words, there would be no respecter of persons. The earth mourns and withers. The world fades and withers. The exalted of the people of the earth fade away. Verse 3 says the earth will be completely laid waste, completely despoiled, for the word of the Lord has spoken it. God has a plan at the end of the age, and it's not a pretty one. It's not a pretty one. Uh, We have seen throughout this study of Isaiah that much of what Isaiah writes, um, he's got a a particular immediate situation that is uh, um, happening in the day that he's writing. Uh, The Assyrian army is coming. 
it's already destroyed the, their brothers and sisters to the north, the country of Israel, the ten northern tribes in 722 B.C., the Assyrian army decimated them. And now they're surrounding Jerusalem in Judah. Hezekiah is the king, and we're going to read more about him next week. It's a, it's a doomsday scenario right before their eyes that's happening. Isaiah writes about events happening in his own day, but he also writes about events that are going to happen about a hundred some years later when Assyria is no longer on the scene and the world empire is the Babylonians and the Babylonians are now coming against the people. But he also writes about events that take place seven centuries in the future at the birth of the king, Messiah, Jesus. But he also writes about events that have not yet happened even from our day and age. Events that are still to unfold when Jesus Christ returns again and sets up his kingdom on earth. It's like looking at, and we've put this graphic up before, it's like looking at two mountain peaks. The prophet sees uh, events that uh, are going to take place in his lifetime, but there is another mountain peak and maybe another one beyond that. And when he looks at it from his vantage point, it kind of like it all runs together. What he doesn't see is the valleys of time in between the two mountain peaks. Centuries of time. Centuries of time. Don Den Hartog, our pastor of biblical education, who right now with our children's pastor, Charlie, are in Israel with a trip uh, from a group from Omaha, Nebraska. But Don last year taught us through 2 Thessalonians, and I would encourage you and urge you to go back. Those are online. Um, it's a series uh, entitled Back on Track. And Don laid out for us through the Scriptures in 2 Thessalonians kind of a timeline of, of things that are going to take place, um, kind of this, this uh, prophetic timeline from Isaiah's day, looking into the future. There was Christ's first coming, and he talked about that. But then this Messiah would die and rise again. And this kind of mystery time called the age of the church or the church age. It's the time that we're living in right now. And that'll end one day when Jesus Christ returns for his bride and snatches us up, takes us up with him in glory. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that's our hope, that blessed hope. But it's not the beginning of good times for the world because there's a period of time, it's called the 70th week of Daniel, the book of Daniel lays it out, but it's seven years of what is called incredible tribulation on the earth. It's a time of, of great trial and tribulation. It is marked by God's hand of judgment and wrath on this world. It's the time where God says enough is enough and he pours out his judgment on the world. It's a time of tribulation. But when that time is over, Jesus Christ will return and he'll set up his reign on earth in Jerusalem. Well, this period of time known as the Great Tribulation is what I think Isaiah is writing about in chapter 34. So let's look at that chapter again. Again, those first opening verses draw near, O nations, and hear, listen, O peoples, the earth and all it contains here, the world and all that springs from it, 
For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations, his wrath against all their armies. This is a a, a massive destruction. This is a massive outpouring of God's wrath against all the nations. It's like not since Noah's flood has the world seen such a demonstration of God's judgment. If we take verses like Isaiah 24, 3 that we read earlier, literally, the earth will be completely laid waste, completely despoiled, for the Lord has spoken His word. If we take literally these words in uh, chapter 34, for the Lord's indignation is against all the nations and His wrath against all their armies, we can only conclude that there is something yet to befall this world that this we've not yet seen in human history. Something that is coming that is so total, so encompassing. We've never seen something like it. God is going to pour out His wrath one day against all the nations, yes, even the United States of America. There is no nation that exists, that is living for the glory of God. None. And one day God will say, enough. And he will arise with judgment. And all the nations of the world will come under his judgment and wrath. Not only that, verse 4, it says, all the host of heaven will wear away. Now, some of your translations uh, will say the stars of heaven, which is a, I think the NIV says that, maybe some others, but it's a mistranslation. It's, the word isn't stars. The word is the host of heaven, the host of heaven. And that's a word that simply means the armies of. It's used oftentimes of God. He is the Lord of hosts. We see it in Isaiah. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. And the question is, well, who are the host of heavens that are also going to come under his judgment? Who is this? Back in, again, Isaiah 24, verse 21, Isaiah wrote, So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high. There it is again. As well as the kings of the earth on earth. No one is going to be spared his judgment. But who are the hosts of heaven that are going to be punished There is a connection, we know. There is a connection between the demonic realm and the nations of the world. When Jesus was being tempted, Luke chapter 4, Satan is coming to tempt him, and Satan says, it says in Luke 4 verse 5, he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and all its glory, for it's been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. In fact, it's, that's stated in a very emphatic language in the original. Satan was basically saying, to you I will give this because to me it has been given. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours, Satan tempts Jesus and Of course, Jesus answered, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But was the father of lies lying here? 
I don't think so. The Bible tells us that he is called the God of this world. We know from other scriptures that as this world lies in the grip of the evil one, so do the nations of this world. And when he said, these kingdoms are mine to give to you, in some way, in some form or fashion, that is a truthful statement. And one day God is going to say, enough. And his wrath is going to come against all the nations as well as the, the armies in the heavenlies, the, the demonic realm, Satan and his minions. And then the last part of verse 4 could refer to, because the, the phrase is repeated, the, the heavens are going to be rolled up like a scroll and their hosts will also wither away. And that might refer to the, the celestial realm. It could refer to that. In other words, there's just going to be this sweeping judgment that's going to come. The point, again, that Isaiah is saying is that the world has never seen something like this before. This hasn't happened before. This is yet to take place. It's violent, verse 5. My sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It's sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, the fat of kidneys of rams. For the Lord is a sacrifice in Basra, that's the capital of Edom, and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Edom was a land which would be modern-day Jordan. If you think back, Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, and Isaac was the son of promise, and Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, twins, remember? Esau lost the birthright. He sold it for a pot of porridge through the deception, the, the beguiler of Jacob, and there was enmity between those brothers. Esau's lineage is known as the Edomites, and Jacob's lineage are the Israelites. Edom, I think, stands here for all the nations, all those who are opposed to God's people, Israel. And judgment is coming. He uses that analogy of, of, um, of a sacrifice. He goes on and uh, uses this uh, analogy of, uh, of, of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 9 and 10, that streams shall be turned into pitch and its loose earth into brimstone and its land shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night and day. Its smoke shall go up forever from generation to generation. It shall be desolate. In other words, the world as we know it is going to come to an end. Why? Verse 8, for the Lord has a day of vengeance and a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. The Bible tells us that there's a day coming when the armies of the world, the nations, are going to assemble against God's chosen people, Israel. And in that great day of tribulation, God is going to descend and his armies with him. And he's going to put an end to it. The Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. He goes on in this very figurative language to communicate a very literal truth, world destruction. 
It's fascinating. It's, he talks about a lot of animals and, and that are just going to ravage and humanity is going to be laid waste so that these, verse 11, pelicans and hedgehogs, that's as my translation, shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch over it the line of desolation, the plumb line of emptiness. And by the way, those two words in the Hebrew are tohu vavohu. They're found first and foremost, only a few times in Scripture, but the first time they're found is Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was tohu vavohu, formless and empty, void. And when God's hand of destruction reigns on this earth, it's like a reverting back to before the world was even formed and fashioned in its beauty. It anticipates that God must and one day will recreate and have a new heavens and a new earth. Because when God is done in his wrath and indignation and pouring out his judgment, it is desolation and emptiness. Again, very figurative language to communicate this literal truth. The enemies of Israel will be utterly and forever vanquished. Now, these truths that are spoken here, and, and like Isaiah 24, I think are verified also in the New Testament. It was Jesus who said in Matthew 24, 21, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will afterwards. The point is the world has not yet seen this. Isaiah is prophetically speaking of a time that is coming. Turn with me to the book of a revelation as just some examples revelation uh, chapter 16 revelation chapter 16 verse 13 revelation 16:13 and i saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like like frogs for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. And they gathered them together to a place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. Armageddon. If you've been on a trip to Israel, you have made that one of your stops to look over the valley of Megiddo. Or we could go to Revelation chapter 12, back a couple of chapters. Revelation 12. It says in verse 7, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. That's Isaiah 34, 4. The host of heaven, God's sword is saturated with the blood. Again, very figurative language of this war in heaven. Verse 10 says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah, his Christ, have come. 
For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when they faced with death. And for this reason, verse 12, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Events that are about to take place maybe in this very world. Or again, chapter 19 of Revelation, verse 11. Chapter 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. That's Isaiah 34. His eyes are a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself, and he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in the fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he'll rule them with a rod of iron, and and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Isaiah saw it. He warned the people of that day, and he warns us today. A day of indignation of wrath is coming against all the nations of the earth. One other passage, just back in the Old Testament, Zechariah, I'll read it, Zechariah chapter 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, half the city exiled, and the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. And then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. That's Isaiah 34. That's Revelation 19. And when he fights, as he fights on a day of battle, and his feet on that day will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from the east to the west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move from the north, the other half to the south. And you will flee by that valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. We just read that. Revelation. A day is coming when God will judge the nations. A great tribulation is going to befall this world. It's coming. Worldwide judgments. And not a nation will be spared. Folks, we're sitting right here, you know, October, what is it, 7th, 19, or 2018. And as sure as we're sitting here, this is not make-believe. This is not some Hollywood scenario of doomsday. This is the Word of God. And not a nation on this earth, including this one, will be spared the wrath of God coming upon this, this world. 
This is what God's Word says. But, as we've seen the last week or two, after judgment comes hope, comes blessing. And that's chapter 35. So back to Isaiah chapter 35. So we just finished this chapter on, on judgment that's going to rain upon the earth and the hosts of heaven are going to be destroyed and, and, the, and the judgment upon all the nations. Then you come to chapter 35. Look what it says, verse 1 and 2. The wilderness and the desert will be glad and the Arabah, that's the southern desert, will, be, will rejoice and blossom like, like the crocus. Some of our translations says like roses. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with the rejoicing and the shout of joy and the glory of Lebanon will be given to it and the mystery of Carmel and Sharon. They'll see the glory of the Lord. They'll see the majesty of our God because He's coming. And so, Verse 3 and 4 say, encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble. Say to those who are anxious of heart, take courage, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, and He'll save you. As the nations will be arrayed, in prophetic scripture we know this, as the nations will be arrayed against Israel in that final battle of Armageddon. Look, look, behold, your Redeemer comes. And he'll save you. And then, when he comes, then, verse 5, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness, the streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool, the thirsted ground springs of water, the haunt of jackals, its resting place, and grass will become reeds and rushes. And a highway will be there, a roadway which is called the Highway of Holiness. And the unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way. And fools will not wander it, nor lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up there. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will come, and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. And they will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Why? Because the king has come. And he comes and he reigns. And, and who are the beneficiaries of, of the coming king? It says there in verse 9 and 10, the redeemed and the ransomed. And we, it's just two little words that Isaiah pens in this holy scripture, but those words mean the redeemed and the ransomed. Both words have this idea that these are people who have benefited by the payment of some price. You can't get redeemed. You can't get ransomed without someone paying a price. Where does that come from? Just kind of thrown in here in the Scriptures. As we'll see, and we've talked about it, Isaiah 53. For this coming king is the one who came the first time in one of those first mountain peaks of the prophetic scheme, timeline of things, one of those first mountain peaks was the coming of the king we beheld His glory, John said. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And as Jesus came onto the scene, they pointed to Him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we've remembered that this morning. He came the first time to pay for our sins, to be the sacrificial payment, to redeem us, to ransom us from the slave market of sin, and to offer us the free gift of eternal life. 
This blessed hope that he's talking about here in chapter 35 is the free gift of anyone who simply receives it by faith. The redeemed and the ransom enjoy this. By the way, this is not a heavenly scene. This is not some scene that's taking place in heaven. It's, it's, it's a scene that's taking place on earth. The judgment that's going to come, the blessing that's going to come, the highway to heaven that comes up to Jerusalem, to Zion, where everlasting joy, where the people will come, the nations will come. We saw that in chapter 2 of Isaiah. All these things are woven into this prophetic scripture. Isaiah chapter 2. The nations of the world are going to come before our great God to learn of Him, to seek His wisdom in Jerusalem. These are all things that are going to take place when the King returns and transforms what He has just judged into something new. It, it all starts with His first coming. It concludes with His second coming. This is not Hollywood. This is God who has spoken this. And so the question I think that we need to ask is, if this is true, and it is, how do we live our life today? In just a few moments, folks, you're going to get out of that chair and you're going to walk out that door, get to your car, and live your life in a world that is about to be judged while you wait for a king who is about to come. How are you going to live it? How are we going to live it? Thursday night, we had the Abacare banquet that we hosted here, a fundraiser for the Crisis Pregnancy Center. And John Stone Street, who grew up here in Winchester, he was the speaker. And he shared some, I think, some very poignant truths, but more importantly, four questions that every Christian should ask themselves about how we are to live in a world about to be judged while we wait for a king who's about to come. And he summarized these four questions. They're in his book, by the way, which is called A Practical Guide to Culture. Four questions that we should all be asking as we leave here today. What good can we celebrate, protect, promote, preserve? What is missing that we can contribute what evil can we stop? What brokenness can we restore? How, how do we live in this world? You know, what good can we celebrate, protect, promote? What's good that's going on? Like, like a crisis pregnancy center that is right here in our community saving hundreds of lives. That is good. Are we contributing to it? What, 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 what other things? Can you volunteer, participate in Meals on Wheels? That's good. Volunteer at the hospital. That's good. Donate blood. Those are good things. Where, where are the good things going on in this world that we can celebrate, that we can promote, that we can protect, that we can continue to preserve? Where does God want to use us? Or second of all, what's missing that we can contribute? A few years ago, we saw the elders... We're praying and together, and we saw that in our community, as the Hispanic population is growing and growing and growing, no Bible, really Bible-teaching church in the Hispanic community is found there. That is distinctively Bible-teaching. And so we started one, by God's grace. 
What, 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 what is missing that we can contribute to? Outreaches at Corals Elementary School, an area in our community that desperately needs someone to come and help these kids, just be a friend to tutor. And so we started a tutoring program. And 32 FBCers every Wednesday or every week go and meet with a little five-year-old, a little eight-year-old, or a little 12-year-old to help them, to love on them. A biblical counseling ministry that we decided it's just too good to keep to ourselves, and there's people in this community who are coming and calling and being impacted by biblical counseling that we can offer here as a church. What's missing? What, what do you see in your neighborhood, in your world that's missing that you can actually do something about? What evil is there that we can stop? The evil of abortion? I think it's a central issue of our day. A million babies unborn, butchered. It's something that must be stopped. Trafficking of children, trafficking of women, racial bigotry, homelessness. And by the way, that's where the political process comes in. We've got an election coming up, folks. How dare we not go and vote and vote biblical values? That's something we can do to contribute to good as well as the abatement of evil. Or what brokenness can we restore? A jail ministry to bring hope to those incarcerated. A ministry of care like a, like a Stephen ministry that we can participate in. Helping families become whole again through a home center and a, and a counseling ministry. What in your life, what in your world, where are there needs that you as a believer in Jesus Christ can rise up while we wait for this world to certainly be judged and while we wait for the King to come? How do we let our light shine before men in such a way to do it in such a way that they see our good works and, we, and they come to glorify our Father who is in heaven. This is the call of God's people. This is the call of, of the church of Jesus Christ to rise up and be that hope and be that light in a world that is about to be judged by a God who will say, enough of the sin. But before he does that, he has his people, the body of Christ on this earth, to make a difference. I don't know if you caught it in the, in the paper yesterday. The 2018 Nobel Prizes were awarded. And one of the people who was awarded that prize is a man by the name of Dr. Dennis McWeggie. Now, he's a doctor in Africa, a gynecologist. Um, he's dedicated his life to caring for victims of, of sexual violence, sexual abuse in the D D Democratic Republic of Congo. And his work has been so marvelously seen by the world. He was awarded 
last week, the Nobel Peace Prize. What the article didn't explain is Dr. Mukwege is a, is a Christian. His dad was a pastor. It was a Pentecostal pastor in Congo. And he once said, explained recently that as he was, would travel with his dad, his dad would go from village to village. And as his dad would pray for people and, and minister to people and pray over them, the sicknesses were rampant. And, and little Dennis asked his dad one day, he said, um, why, can't, why, why can't you heal them, dad? And his father explained to him, I'm not a doctor, son. I give him the life of Jesus. And that's stuck in little Dennis's mind, and, and God called him to be a doctor. And he is changing lives in such dark places. Recently, he said this, if Christians do not live out the practical implications of their faith among their communities and neighbors, we cannot fulfill the mission entrusted to us by Christ. It's living out that light of Christ while we wait for this world to be judged. He challenged fellow Christians to consider, quote, the, the credibility of the gospel, the credibility of the gospel in the 21st century, and to liberate the grace that we have received by making the church a light that shines in this world of darkness through our struggles for justice and truth and law and freedom, in short, for the dignity of men and women. It's a fight. Folks, we don't have the right to sit on our hands while the world is going to hell in a handbasket. What do we do while we wait for a world that is about to be judged and a king who is about to come? We are the light of the world. We better get ourselves in proper working condition. Get serious about God, following Him wholeheartedly. Come on, is there some sin going on in our life? Deal with it. Repent. Live for God, for the days are short and judgment is coming. And sometimes, folks, we just need a kick in the rear end. My, they pay me to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Not much, but they pay me to do this. What an opportunity in the days we're living in to light up the world with Jesus. What an opportunity. What was it that Isaiah said? Encourage the exhausted. Go out there today and strengthen the feeble. Sometime this week, say to those who have anxious hearts, take courage. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. And the recompense of God will come, but He will save you. And let's give this world the good news that a ransom has been paid. The redemption price was paid that the Savior died to offer life. What do we do while we wait for this world to be judged? And we wait for the King to come? 
we give them Jesus. Let's go out and give them Jesus. Let's pray. And so, Father, how we need to have our, our spirits stilled and quieted, to reflect on the fact that as redeemed and ransomed people, we are blessed beyond our wildest imaginations with life and life eternal. Our sin has been dealt with and paid for at the cross. We have life to offer others. And as we can sing, it is well with my soul. Thank you, God. Our neighbors, our family members, our world, so many cannot sing that and say that. And so, Father, may we depart here with this simple prayer. Lord, show me how to be the light you want me to be. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.